accompanied when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the, uh, in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, the time that we spend around your word today. May you guide and direct our hearts and our thoughts. May we understand the true picture of Christmas. And may it be an encouragement to us. For those that are saved, that have trusted you as their Savior, (coughs) Lord, I pray that you would help it to cause great joy that there would be a time of recommitting ourselves to You and uh, the recommitment of living in a way that is pleasing to You. Lord, not so that we can gain our salvation. You've already paid for that on Calvary. But Father, we certainly want to show our love and our appreciation for that. We certainly want to have a relationship and a walk with You daily. And so, Father, help us to recommit ourselves. If there's someone here today that does not know if they were to die, that they would go to heaven if they're trusting in their good deeds, or if they're trusting in their church membership or baptism, then, Lord, I pray that You would help through the preaching of Your Word to show them that that is not what will save them. That's not what will get them to heaven. But that only by putting their faith and their trust in You and what You've done on Calvary for us may we gain this wonderful thing of eternal life and a time in heaven for all of eternity with You. I pray that You'll bless the preaching of Your Word. May You use it in a way that You would see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember years ago growing up, and uh, I love Christmas time, and uh, Mom and Dad had a little uh, manger scene. And we, didn't, we lived in Florida, so we didn't have a mantle to put it on. And uh, Mom and Dad had bought a cardboard fireplace. Some of you all might remember some of those. Uh, used to put them up and had a little light bulb that you put in there and a little metal thing that sat on top on a little pin. And it would spin around and make it look like fire up there and... I couldn't wait till the time that mom and dad drug that out of the attic and we got to put that up and then we'd set our, our little manger scene up on top of the mantle. And I remember growing up with those fond memories uh, of those things. And uh, as I got older, I, a number of years ago, it's probably about 10 or 12, maybe 15 years, probably 15 years ago now, it's been a while, uh, I had a person hand me uh, an article uh, that was written, just a, a two-page article, uh, on a thing called the Tower of the Flock. And as a lot of times 
Uh, as pastors, you're handed things and people ask you to look at them and some of them are, are good and some of them you look at in Scripture and you say, well, that's not in there and it's just something kind of off the wall. And I looked at that and I had never heard of anything such as the Tower of the Flock. And uh, I, I kind of tossed it on my desk and I thought, well, when I get time, I'll look at it. I, it's probably one of these off-the-wall things and, and uh, didn't think much about it until a couple weeks later. I finally got to that point where I was able to spend a few minutes reading it and I picked it up and I read it. And one of the things that struck me and impressed me was how much Scripture they gave in the article. I began to look at the Scriptures, and sure enough, what they said was in there was in there. And I had never seen it before. I had always grown up with an image of what the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was like. That there was some kind of a, a, a stable that was rough and hewn out maybe of a rock or maybe out of rough timbers and lumber. And uh, that there was a, a dirty, smelly place with cattle and, and all this stuff around it. And uh, that, that it was just a really rough and a crude scene. And uh, I realized as I began to read Scripture that that was not what took place on the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And then I began to understand the significance behind what the Bible began to say about how He was born. You'll find the term manger used in the Scriptures, but you'll never find the term stable. It's not in there. And I was telling somebody just recently, in fact, just last week, I was sharing some of this with another person, a dear friend of mine. And uh, I shared with them, I said, you know, it's not, uh, they had a, a, a manger scene set up, and I said, it's not scriptural. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, there wasn't a stable, and at least not, not where he was born. I'm sure there were stables around. But uh, I said, it wasn't a stable he was born in. He was born in the Tower of the Flock. And uh, they said, what are you talking about? And I was able to take some time to share with them. And I want to take a few moments to share some things with you from Scripture in case you've never heard of it before. If you've heard of it before, you'll sit there this morning and rejoice in it again as we hear of the wonderful, perfect plan that God had for the birth of His Son. And I want us to look at it. Don't take my word for it. I want us to see it in Scripture, all right? And we're going to take a look here. If you will, hold your place in Luke 2. We're going to come back here in just a few moments. And we're going to see some things the next time we read through Luke 2 that perhaps we haven't considered. Uh, in the past. And uh, let's start all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter number 35. And what I want to ask you to do for me this morning is um, we're going to spend probably about 15, maybe 20 minutes dealing with historical things from Scripture. And you may say, well, these things are unattached. They don't seem to all fit together. But if you'll bear with me and, and keep hold of all of it till we get to the end, you'll see how it all fitly comes together. All right? So let's look in Genesis chapter number 35. We're going to uh, look at a couple places here. We know that the Bible speaks of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, it's interesting, if you take time to look over in the Middle East and you look at the maps, there are two different Bethlehems that are, that are out there. Uh, one of them is up uh, by uh, the Sea of Galilee, up in that area, in that range. And then one of them is down further near, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, about six miles or so outside of Jerusalem. <coughs> is where modern Bethlehem is. And uh, here in just a few, probably in a few days, and maybe even already some people are uh, making their pilgrimage to uh, Bethlehem over there in the Middle East. And many of them are probably going to go and uh, visit the, uh, the church that they have there, the Church of the Nativity, where uh, the tourist place is that they say this is where Christ was born. Uh, there's a reason why I don't believe that was it, and, and one of them being that 
Um, it was outside of the four-mile uh, rabbinical distance that the sacrificial lambs could be taken in order to be sacrificed. And uh, we'll look at that in just a little bit here as we get into it. But uh, we, it's important for us to understand which Bethlehem we're talking about here, and the Bible does tell us which one. And we, we're going to begin in verse number, chapter number 35, and we're dealing here with uh, Jacob. Jacob is uh, married uh, to uh, Rachel, and uh, they, they come to the end of, um, uh, of their uh, time together as she's having the birth of Benjamin, their son, and God takes her home. He, she doesn't uh, survive the birth of Benjamin. And we'll begin reading, uh, uh, let's go in verse number 16 uh, of Genesis chapter 35. The Bible says, And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to, notice this, the, the, the name of the place here, a little way to come to Ephrath. So they're, they're really, really close, or it says a little way, they were but a little way to come to Ephrath, and Rachel travailed. And had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou, hast, uh, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benani. Now, the word Benani means the son of my sorrow. And uh, understand that this was her sorrow in the fact that she had, I believe, in the fact that she had been promised uh, the promised land, and God had given all these promises, and Jacob had talked to her about all of these things that God had given to them, and, and she was not going to be able to be a part of it. Her soul was departing this, and I believe that this was part of it. Part of it, I believe, also the pains of birth and the suffering that she had gone through, where she calls him and she names him the son of my sorrow by calling him Benani. But his father called him Benjamin, and the word Benjamin, the name Benjamin, means the son of my right hand or the son of my strength, if you will. And, uh, and so Jacob says, no, we're not going to call him the son of my sorrow. We're going to call him the son of my right hand. A very interesting fact that, G, that uh, Jacob calls him this at this place. And Rachel, notice in verse number 19, And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, notice this, which is Bethlehem. So we're dealing here with the Bethlehem that is in the plains of or in the area of the region of what is called Ephrath. Well, what is Ephrath? Uh, if you'll take your uh, Bibles and turn back just a few chapters, let's go back to Genesis 23 and see how did they come to buy this place. What was, what was so special about this? In Genesis chapter 23, we're going to back up a couple of generations to um, uh, Abraham, which was the grandfather of Jacob, and Sarah. And Sarah's getting ready to die. And uh, in chapter 23, in verse number 1, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died and encourageth Arba, and the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner which... Uh, with you, give uh, a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my lord. Thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre. So they were offering. You can take the best sepulchre of ours that you can find. But notice this. 
but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth, and communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a bearing place amongst you. And Ephron... Uh, dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of the city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me, the field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of the people give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field, take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me, the land is worth four hundred shekels of silver, and what is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money, for the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, uh, and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field, and were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham, notice this, for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. So Abraham buys uh, of uh, uh, Ephron this, this plot of land. He doesn't allow them to give it to him. He buys it, so it is a possession, something that is part of the family of Abraham. And so when, when it comes time now for Rachel to die, Jacob's wife to die, they're moving this, this area, and God providentially brought them there, I believe, and led them this way as they left Bethel. And she's in the region, they're in the, the, just a short ways away from this place uh, this, that Abraham had bought and, uh, for Sarah, for a burial place. And so they're in their family burial area, and this is where uh, Jacob uh, buries uh, uh, Rachel. Now, if you'll go back to Genesis 35 for a second, and uh, let's look at, look at this very quickly. Uh, the Bible says uh, in verse number 18, And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name ben but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way uh, to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave, unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent, notice this, beyond, notice this phrase, the Tower of Edar. Now, there is a tower that is here that has been built sometime between the time that Abraham bought it and the time that Jacob comes, the, uh, the Jebusites eventually take control of this region. We don't know if they're the ones that built this one or not. But they built a defensive outpost. It was a tower, obviously, and it was called the Tower of Edar. Now, this tower is going to have a couple of names throughout Scripture. We're going to see those. One of them uh, is going to be uh, the Tower of Zion, or the Castle of Zion, uh, or the Tower of Zion, and uh, one of them is going to be called uh, the Shepherd's Field. And then later on, as we get over to Micah, the same tower, the same structure, is going to be called the Tower of the Flock. Now, in Hebrew, the Tower of, Ebru, uh, uh, of Edar is uh, given in the Hebrew language is Migdal Eder. 
Uh, you can take time and research this, and many of the Jews, historical Jews, who know that Christ is the Messiah, understand this, and they will say that even historical facts will back this up. Um, so there are, there are this tower that's built here in uh, this uh, field of Ephrath, uh, right, right there at the gates of uh, Bethlehem. The Bible calls it here, uh, which is Bethlehem. And uh, now, if you will, uh, go with me to, um, uh, let's see where we want to go this time. Let's go to First Chronicles first, and then we're going to come back to another passage here. Let's go on to First Chronicles. <clears throat> and uh, let's go to chapter number 11. Again, bear with me for a moment and uh, kind of understand what's going on. So Abraham has bought a piece of property. Several generations later, two generations later, Jacob buries Rachel there and calls it Bethlehem. This is Bethlehem. He makes reference to the fact that already at this point in time, there is a tower that is built there called the Tower of Edar. All right, now look with me in, in First Chronicles chapter number 11. And uh, the, uh, some of the uh, uh, enemies of, <coughs> of Israel had uh, overtaken this region under the reign of David at this time. And David is kind of reconquering the land and doing some things here. We get to chapter 11 and verse number 4. The Bible says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David, notice this, took the castle of Zion, notice this, which is the what? City of David. This is the first reference that we have that Bethlehem is referred to here as the city of David. This is, this is when, when David takes this city, uh, this area, this Bethlehem, and the Ephrath and this, this tower that's there that the, uh, at this point that the Jebusites have now gained control of. And uh, he calls it the city of David. This is where it becomes known as that. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief... And captain, so Joab, the son of uh, Jeriah, uh, went first up and was chief. And David dwelt, notice this, in the what? He dwelt in the castle, okay? This, this stronghold that was built there, this defensive area. Therefore, they called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, even from Milo round about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David waxed greater and greater for the Lord of hosts, was with him. Now, there's two very significant places we need to be aware of. One of them is the tower uh, of uh, Edar, which is known here as the castle of Zion. It's the, the uh, place where David has set up his dwelling, and he says, this is my stronghold, this is where I'm going to base myself, and he builds the city around it. You say, how do you know this is Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem is known as the city of David. And when we find that this is the place, the city of David, then we know that this is dealing with the Bethlehem that is located in Ephrath. Okay, so we understand how that ties together in Scripture. All right, now there's another place we need to be aware of. I want you to tuck that away for a moment. We're going to come back to it in just a second. There's another place that is also needing to be dealt with here. So let me try to help give a little bit of a frame and a picture here. You have Jerusalem, which is God's, you know, the, the capital uh, of this, uh, uh, where God's chosen people are. The temple is there, and the sacrifices are made there, and uh, so you have Jerusalem. 
the old Bethlehem, not, not where modern-day Bethlehem is now, but the old Bethlehem is uh, a lot closer to the city than where the, the, the modern-day Bethlehem is. It has migrated uh, a couple of miles over the years. They have excavated. I have a friend of mine that has been there, has been to the ruins, and has measured the inside. This is interesting. Has measured the inside of the ruins of the Tower of Edar. They've actually been there. They've touched it. They've put their hands on it. They've measured it. It's there. It's just a few hundred yards outside of the gates of Old Bethlehem, uh, just off to the side of it, uh, just by a few hundred yards. And then also just a few hundred yards from that is another place that was the place where Boaz owned a threshing floor. And he would thresh his wheat there. If you will, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter number 3. Ruth chapter number 3. Joshua judges Ruth, so it's going to be back a little bit. Ruth chapter number 3. And uh, we're going to see just a little bit of a picture here. And uh, again, this is kind of, kind of crucial to the, to the whole, how this all ties together here. Ruth chapter number 3, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, this is speaking of Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight, notice this, in the flesh threshing floor. So, Boaz is at his threshing floor. The time of day here in verse number 2 is, it's nighttime. This is kind of interesting to me, uh, that Naomi and Ruth are talking about this. And Ruth is going to Boaz's threshing floor, and she is getting some of the gleanings from where he harvested. Boaz kind of liked her. He saw her out in the field. He told his servants, said, hey, I want you to leave a little bit there so she can get a little bit more. He was kind of sweet on her, I think. Uh, the Bible talks a little bit about that. Verse number 3, uh, Naomi's talking to Ruth, says, Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put, on thy, put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. Well, what floor are we talking about here? We're talking about his threshing floor. That's where he's at. He's down there at night, threshing the wheat. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. So Boaz is spending the night here. He's camping here. This was not unusual. In fact, if you'll take time to talk to any of the Jews that know some of the older historical uh, uh, customs of the day, it was not unusual for the Jews to stay in their threshing floors for several weeks as they bring the wheat in and the harvest in. They do the threshing. They, uh, they usually have a, a barrier around it. Again, I've got some friends that have been over there. They have found what they believe to be Boaz's threshing floor just a few hundred yards away. And um, there is a, a, uh, a cliff area uh, that surrounds it about two-thirds around. Um, that is probably 10 or 12 feet high, I guess, or so. Um, and in those are carved out areas where they would take the wheat when it was threshed and they would put them into these, these holding areas in the walls. And these walls were large enough. They were um, probably about 12 feet by maybe 6 or 8 feet tall and about 8 feet deep that you could put two or three people in them and sleep in them and get out of the elements and out of the weather. They even had uh, hallways dug back into the wall where they would have off, off of that hallway 
uh, into the cliff walls. They would have uh, other compartments and places where uh, sometimes a small family even could lodge and be a, a place of it. So it's not uncommon for uh, people of the household to sleep here, to eat here. And the Bible says here uh, in, uh, in verse number uh, 4, uh, I'm sorry, verse number uh, 6, And she went down under the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly in and covered his feet and laid her down. So again, Boaz staying at this place was not an uncommon thing. Uh, camping out there was not an uncommon thing. I've done a lot of research, and I have found some evidence to this fact, but I will say this, that what I'm getting ready to tell you, I can't prove historically 100%, but there is evidence towards this, that these threshing floors were used in times of when family would come for them to stay on the family property, especially during a time of a census. As, as time went, went on, there are historical records that show that sometimes, even when there was not a census, if a traveler came through and was needing a place to stay, oftentimes they would allow them to stay in these, in these threshing floors because it was a place they could camp, they could be out of the weather, and lodging. And uh, I, I won't dogmatically say this one because I don't, I don't think I can prove it 100%, but I, I do firmly believe that this is where it got its start. And so oftentimes travelers would come by needing a place to stay, and they would rent a place in the threshing floor. And as far as I can tell historically, this was where the first glimmers of what we refer to as a, a modern-day inn started, that travelers would seek for a place of shelter and food, and uh, they, would, uh, they would gather it there. There's some ties etymologically of the word uh, where we get our word in from um, in some of the older languages that uh, it refers to a gathering in place, which would hold true to the fact that this is a threshing floor. It's where you're gathering in things and where we got our word in from. I mean, where did that come from? Who came up with that word and coined it? Uh, there is some validity, some evidence that causes it to think that. Now, you may say, well, Brother Greg, that's your opinion. You can't prove it. And I understand that. That's fine. But there is something unique in the story in Luke 2 that I think will help us to understand that there's a very good possibility that this was the place where uh, Moses and Mary initially came to and were trying to find shelter. We'll take a look at that here in just a little bit. So let's, uh, let's go now to Micah chapter number 5. Micah chapter number 5. And let's, a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, Micah chapter 5, and let's look in verse number 2. All right? Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. So this is a prophetic verse dealing with the coming and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Micah says this, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. So, again, which Bethlehem is he speaking of here? He's speaking of the one in the valley of Ephrath, this place just outside of Jerusalem the place where the tower of the flock is and the place where David took over and uh, was in the castle of Zion. During the time of David, from the time of David and as he later moves his, his center of uh, the palace being in uh, Jerusalem and other places, and he leaves Bethlehem itself, 
as we see um, the uh, time that goes from David until this time of Micah, the area that is known as Ephrath or the valley or the field of Ephrath has been trans, uh, transferred into um, a shepherd's field. Uh, there are historical records of this in the Jews' uh, history, and it can be very well and easily documented that this uh, Valley of Ephrath became not just a field for sheep, but a very specific field. It became the field for the sacrificial lambs that were to be sacrificed in the temple. The reason they used this was so that they were within the uh, rabbinical distance that they could take these unblemished and unspotted sheep to uh, take them for sacrifice in the temple, and that the shepherds that were there were not just any shepherds, but they were Levitical shepherds. These shepherds had to be uh, purified themselves in order to even watch the flocks. They were the only shepherds that, in that time period, would watch the flocks 24 hours a day. There were shepherds that would stay with their flocks oftentimes, but they would lay across the fold and they would sleep and they would be awakened early. But, but the only shepherds that would be awake and watching the flocks all night long were the Levitical shepherds. And the reason they did that was once a lamb was certified uh, by, the, by the chief shepherd uh, as being without spot and without blemish and was worthy of sacrifice, they had to ensure that that lamb did not get blemished and did not have a spot on him. And so they would care for them literally 24 hours a day and would have to keep watch over them by night not just lay there and sleep with them and be a part of it, but they would have to watch by night to see these things. When a lamb was born, they would take them uh, just outside of the tower, uh, what became known as the Tower of the Flock, which used to be the Tower of Eater, and the, the ewe would give birth to the lamb, and then they would take the lamb and they would wash them carefully. They would take them inside the tower, and the chief Levitical shepherd would inspect the lamb. And being found without spot and without blemish, two things happened. One is they would wrap the lamb in swaddling clothes. It was blemishless. It did not have spot. And so they wanted to make sure it stayed that way. And they would lay it down so that it was in a place where it could feed with the mother, the manger area. It was not dirty. It, was, it had to be kosher in order for that lamb to be pure and without spot and without blemish. It had to be very, very clean. Great place to have a birth of a baby. When that took place and a lamb was born that met the requirements and was inspected of the high priest, uh, the, 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 the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd would then go up to the top of the tower and he would light a light signifying that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born, letting the whole world know about it. This is interesting to me. Look with me in chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Who are we speaking of here? Who's he talking about? There's only one person that has been from everlasting, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look back just one chapter to Micah chapter number 4. Again, dealing with this exact same issue. Micah chapter number 4. And let's begin reading. And uh, uh, let's see here. Let's start in um, verse number 3. 
We'll start for sake of time. Let's go to verse 5. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted, uh, that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion. What, what, did, what was this called when David entered it? The, the castle of Zion, was it not? Shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. Notice this. And thou, O tower of the flock. Well, what's he speaking of here? He's talking of Migdal Eder. He's talking of the tower of Eder, this shepherd's field, this castle of Zion. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Notice this, even the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Notice this, is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? What's one of the names that Jesus is going to be called? He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Isn't that interesting? Is thy counselor perished? For the pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Sounds like childbirth to me. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go, notice this, even to Babylon. This is really very interesting to me. Babylon was a big empire. During the time of Micah, it extended all the way down and included the land of Egypt. Micah would have known and referred to Egypt as Babylon. And so when we get here, we understand this, that thou shalt go even to Babylon. Notice this, there shalt thou be what? Delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Where did Jesus and Mary and Joseph have to flee to be delivered from King Herod? Down to Egypt, didn't they? Very interesting. Isn't it something that in verse number 8, not only do they tell us what city this is going to happen in, it tells us the exact building and facility that it's going to happen in. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Go back to Luke chapter number 2 for a moment. There are several things I want us to note as we go back through this story. Understanding a little bit now, historically, some of the things that are in place. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own what? City. So where were Joseph and Mary going to end up going? They're going to go to Bethlehem. You say, how do you know that? Because verse number 4 tells us. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David. Is there any question where Joseph went? We know exactly where he went, don't we? He went to this place in this valley of Ephrath that is known as Bethlehem. That David referred to it as the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was in the house and lineage of David. 
to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, I love this, and wrapped him in what? Swaddling clothes. And laid him in a manger. Very significant here. Notice it doesn't talk about a stable. Because there was no room for them in, notice this, the, not a, not an, not an indefinite article here, but a definite article. There was only one that is spoken of here. When the shepherds went looking for the Lord Jesus Christ, they did not have to go from end to end trying to find out where He's at. They knew exactly where He was at. <clears throat> when it was referred to here that there was no room for them in the end, the shepherds knew where to look. And there were in the same country shepherds. Why shepherds? Out of all the people in the world that Christ could have been announced to, why the shepherds? Was there something significant about that? Absolutely. When a lamb born for the purpose of sacrifice was born, he had to be viewed and he had to be certified and he had to be observed by the Levitical shepherds. If he was not, if he was not certified by the chief Levitical shepherd, he was never a candidate for sacrifice. They were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field. And I love this, keeping watch over their flock by night. Nothing is in the Bible for accident. There's only one kind of shepherd that would keep watch all night long. And that was the Levitical shepherds. They had to watch these lambs to make sure that they did not get blemished. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. I don't know who the angel of the Lord is here specifically, but I do know a few chapters earlier when the angel of the Lord comes to Elizabeth and talks to her, they ask who he is, and he says, I am Gabriel. Now, he doesn't specify here if it's the same one, but he does refer to the term angel of the Lord. But here's an angel that comes, and he presents the, to the shepherds some things, and the Bible says this, that the glory of the Lord shone round about him. And when a lamb that was born and was certified spotless and blemished without fault, for the purpose of sacrifice, for the atonement of man's sin, was born, they went to the top of the tower and they lit a light to let all of the world know that a lamb that was worthy of sacrifice had been born. And here the Lamb of God, that several years later, as he approaches John baptizing at the River Jordan, John looks up and says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb was born, and the chief Levitical shepherd, our own Savior, God Himself, David said it best in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He's not just any shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He lit a light with His own glory saying, there's a lamb that just was born that isn't just worthy of sacrifice, but He is the Lamb that once and for all will take away the sin of the world. And the light was lit. The angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you glad to good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Again, we, we have very clear 
indication of where He is born. Born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. He said, this is, this is how you're going to know it. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And immediately these shepherds knew where to look. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know that? Because verse number 16. And they came with haste and found. They weren't prolonged in their search for Christ. They didn't have to go looking through the city. They didn't have to go knocking door to door. They knew there was one place where something would be swaddled in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And that was at the Tower of the Flock. Only place. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace, goodwill to men. Can I encourage you in something today? I'm going to, I want to leave two thoughts with you. We find that there was the angel of the Lord that came to the shepherds. The Bible says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wish God would sometimes give us an indication of what was taking place in heaven at this time. I don't know this. But I do know that the Bible uses in verse number 13 the word suddenly. I mean, just that quick. When the angel of the Lord got the announcement out of the way, all of a sudden, the host of heaven were there. Notice what they were doing. The angel of the Lord and the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I don't know this. When we get to heaven, you can ask God to replay it. I hope I get to see it. I have a feeling that when God sent the angel of the Lord to tell those shepherds, the rest of the, sh- the angels are sitting up there ready to go. I mean, they're wringing their hands. I can't wait. I want to get there. I want to just rejoice in this. And this is the thought that struck me a couple of years ago that sobers my heart. These angels were so excited about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have nothing to gain from it. Nothing. Do you know that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ did not benefit the angels one bit? And they were excited. And they were joyful. And they came and they were ecstatic over these things. And the Bible says that they were uh, suddenly they were with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God. And saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And this thought struck me. If the angels of heaven can get that excited over the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and they have nothing to gain from it, how much more excited should you and I be of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have everything to gain from it? Oh, what a thought. If the angels can come and say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men, and they shout it out to the whole world, and they don't care who sees, and they want every ear to hear, then why is it that we can't open our mouths and say the same things? Why can't we go out to a lost and a dying world and say, we don't just have a God who's dead in the grave somewhere, but we have a God who's alive. 
We have a God who sent His Son 2,000 years ago to die on the cross, not for His sake, but for your sake. You have everything to gain by it. And if the angels can rejoice, if there's that much joy and excitement in the angels, how much more joy and excitement should there be in the hearts of you and I who have gotten everything from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, my I read these things and my heart is smitten and there's conviction that is brought at how quiet and how silent I am sometimes over the things of my God. We ought to be ready to give an account to every man a reason of the hope that's within us. Isaiah said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Tells us to lift our voices up like a trumpet. We ought to be telling people about the Lord everywhere we go. Why? Because they have so much to gain from Him. You and I have gotten that. There's one thing I want us to understand and know today. It'd be that we need to be busy going around telling everybody we can. The second thing is I want you to notice the response of the shepherds. The Bible says, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And when the Lord makes something known to us, we ought to be responding right away. Amen? I tell you, I love it. that The Bible says that the Lord made it known unto them, and the very next phrase is, And they came with haste. I wish that I was that way, that when God made something known to me, immediately... I went and did and responded to it the, the way that He wanted me to respond to it. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Notice what it says, verse 17. And this is our message this morning. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. We get to celebrate Christmas here in just about five or six days. Are we going to tell anybody about Him? When we come to face-to-face with seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture, this morning we've taken a trip and come right up next to the manger to see where He's at, to see how He got here. And after seeing all these things and knowing these things, we know as much, in fact, we probably at this point in time know more than these shepherds did. And the Bible said when they saw it, when they heard it, they made known abroad. <laughs> uh, you know what that means? That means they were telling it everywhere they went. They made known abroad the things that they had seen and heard. I wonder if you and I make known abroad. That wonderful day that we trusted Christ as our Savior, when God saved us and redeemed us from our sin, did we make it known abroad? Do we continue to make it known abroad? Oh, what a different picture this seems to paint. We read Luke chapter number 2. It it doesn't just uh, give us the simple story of a little stable somewhere and a cow and and an oxen and and all these things. No, no. We now read Luke chapter number 2 knowing these things with unbelievable joy that God's plan for His coming of His Son was perfect. He met the requirements of the law to be a sacrificial lamb. And only Christ could have done that. Only God could do something so wonderful and perfect. He met every requirement. He fulfilled every obligation. And there, He was pronounced as the Lamb of God 
You know, the Bible refers to Him as slain before the foundation of the world. God knew before God He ever created man that there was going to have to be a plan of redemption. I don't understand that. You asked me to explain why. I can't tell you why. But He continued on with it. And He did it. And I'm thankful that we have a Word of God that tells us the true story of Christmas. That we can fully understand it. Maybe we'll think of Christmas a little differently now. Maybe we'll see Him in a little different light. And I hope that will be a help to us. The question today, twofold. Number one, are you saved? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? He came for you. The Bible said He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for you. Have you trusted Him as your Savior today? Secondly, if you say, Pastor, he's, I trust Him as my Savior. My second question is, are we making known abroad? Are we making known abroad all these things? Oh, that we would be diligent in this area. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, we ask that You would use the message as You would see fit. Father, I pray that You would help us to make commitments to You based upon the leading of Your Holy Spirit to make known abroad, to share with everyone that we have opportunity, everyone that we come in contact with, the wonderful love that You have for us. The fact that You sent Your Son to die on Calvary for us to take away our sin. If there's someone here today that's not saved, Lord, I pray that they would get that matter settled, that they would put their faith and their trust in You. Not trusting their works and what they can do, but trusting what You have already done, putting their faith in that for their salvation. Lord, bless and use it. Would You bless the invitation and use it as You would see fit to move in our hearts and accomplish Your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed, we'll have the... Uh, pianists play through a hymn of invitation. If God has spoken to your heart, perhaps you'd come today. As Christians, are we making known abroad? Are we letting other people know? Oh, what a glorious story we have. Would you come as she plays?
Father, as we close in prayer this afternoon, I pray that you would bless the message and, Lord, speak to our hearts, both the Sunday school hour and the 11 o'clock hour, that you would use it to do its work in us. May we become more of what we ought to be for you. We pray that you'll dismiss us with your blessings. And, Father, bless the time of fellowship, the time of food that we'll enjoy together. And, Lord, may we be busy in the days and weeks ahead looking for every opportunity that you give and bring across our path to share with others and to make known abroad the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, the things that we understand and know from your Word. Lord, may we be as diligent, may we be as uh, excited and as, as willing to give praise and spread your news about as the angels were in heaven. May we be full of zeal, may we be full of excitement, and may we be diligent in this matter. And we pray that you would help us and aid us along the way, that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct and empower us and strengthen us for the work and the great, wonderful uh, opportunity that you provide to us to take this wonderful word and this wonderful story to those that have never heard. I pray that you'll dismiss us now with your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, well, good afternoon, and hope you got plenty to eat today. And um, let's see, we'll do it. <coughs> yes, this is our evening service. It's 1.30 right now, and we'll be done by 2 o'clock-ish. Pardon me? About a half an hour. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, no, we'll be done way before dark. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that's we did that a few years ago because we used to have an evening service after dark, and people couldn't come, so we just moved it till now. Uh huh. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, thank you very much. All righty. Well, let's take our songbooks and um, tell you what. Let's do uh, number ninety-nine, "Angels from the Realms of Glory." And um, you have that one, Miss Evelyn, in your special book there. She has a special book that's easier to play from. So, you got it? Okay. Number 99, you can remain seated. We'll sing all four verses. <coughs> Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Shepherds in the fields abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night. God with man is now residing, yonder shines the infant light. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Sages, leave your contemplation, brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations, ye have seen his natal star. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Saints before the altar bending, watching on in hope and fear. Suddenly the Lord descending in His temple shall appear. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're so thankful and grateful for the day You've given to us, the time of fellowship that has been so sweet, the opportunity to meet new folks and visitors today. 
What a joy it's been to our hearts to have them with us. And we pray that you'll continue to bless as we have this service. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct us. And may we learn some things and may your word stir our hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would do your work in us as you would see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number 94. Number 94. What child is this? Oh, right. Everybody get enough to eat today? Is that good? What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him, Lord, the Babe, the Son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian, fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him, Lord, the Babe, the Son of Mary. So bring Him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come rich and poor to own Him. The King of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone Him. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him, Lord, the Babe, the Son of Mary. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter number 2. We're going to take... A few moments this afternoon to deal with uh, Matthew's account uh, of uh, the early years of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I I love talking and uh, sharing with folks uh, about the Tower of the Flock and uh, all that that symbolizes and pictures and what a joy it is to us. And... uh, the whole Christmas story is amazing. When really, when you look at it and you see all of the things, uh, just absolutely amazing. We get to the book of Matthew. Matthew account, uh, Matthew's account uh, deals with the wise men that came from the east. And um, I'll mention this. We sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And uh, oftentimes when we talk about the, the wise men, we call them the three wise men. The Bible really doesn't tell us how many there were. There's been a lot of people that... Um, uh, wonder about that. I will say that there 
were some early church writings that named these men. They actually had their names written, and by way of early church history or tradition, there were three of them specifically named. Um, but I will say this, that I don't know that from Scripture you can show that there were three of them. Uh, but we do know that there were wise men, and that's what we're going to look at today. And uh, I've seen, in fact, I was driving down the road the other day and saw a sign on, uh, uh, I think it was a church that had a sign up that said, Wise men still seek Him. And if we're wise, we will seek the Lord and uh, do it in our lifetime. And I love that saying. Let's look, if you will, in chapter number 2 of Matthew, and we'll begin in verse number 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And by the way, isn't it good that the birth of Christ was prophesied? Uh, I'll tell you, that's a pretty amazing thing. I, was, I, I, I shared a picture uh, with some folks on uh, Facebook the other day and sent it to a few, a few people that uh, of a statue that they just erected in front of the U.N. building here in the, in the United States. And they call it the Guardian of Peace statue. And it has the wings of an eagle, and it has uh, the face of a lion, and it has the feet or the claws of a bear. And I thought, boy, you cannot open Scripture and find a more perfect description of something like that than you do in prophecy. And here we are in 2021, and we see something like that, and we think, you know, that's not even a surprise to us. Because over 2,000 years ago, over probably almost 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, somebody wrote about that and said it's going to come. It's going to happen. And uh, we look at that, and, and you know, people say, well, I don't know if I trust Scripture. I don't know if I trust the Bible. I don't know if I have enough faith to not trust the Bible. It's so true. There's so many things about it historically and prophetically um, that have... It'd be one thing if half of them, the prophecies came true. But it's interesting that every prophecy that's ever been given in Scripture has been, has been found to be true so far. Uh, not one of them has been found to be an error. And that's amazing to me. We have full confidence that this book doesn't just contain the Word of God, but it is the Word of God. It has all of it in there. And so we find that these things were done as it had been written by the prophet in verse number 5. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art thou not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people, uh, Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again. Uh, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. 
Father, we pray that you'll bless the uh, preaching of your word, and Lord, open the truth of it to our eyes. May we understand clearly and know the things that you have for us. Uh, Lord, so many times we read and we gain understanding of, of a, pas- a passage, and then, Lord, it seems like every time we come back to it, there's something new, something fresh, something more that is to be understood. And, Lord, I pray that you would help to open our hearts and our minds. May your Holy Spirit illuminate the truth of these passages to us. May we see them clearly. And, Father, that it will help to strengthen us in our faith and our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There were some interesting things that took place here. Obviously, the wise men who uh, have traveled, the Bible says, from the east. They had seen his star in the east and were come to worship uh, him. And they come first to Herod. I mean, that's, that's a, a logical place. I mean, these men are wise men. They uh, certainly think that, boy, if there's a king born, then he must be there in Jerusalem. And so the first place they go is to where they think that the king is supposed to be. And they go to Jerusalem, they get with Herod, and they say, uh, we've come to worship the child. And Herod is troubled by this. He asks them how long ago they saw the star, and they've been following the star. Now, the Bible doesn't answer that question for us, how long they've been following the star. But a little bit later, when Herod gives a decree to, to kill all of the male children, he uses the age from two years and below. And I believe there's a significance in that, in that more than likely the, the uh, wise men had been following this star for a period of time that was uh, a while here, probably as much as two years. And uh, again, I think the Bible kind of shows that. I don't know that we could, I, I wouldn't stake my salvation on it because it's not clearly stated, but it certainly could be derived from Scripture, I believe, in knowing that. And so they come to the place where the child is, and the Bible says, as we get to uh, verse number 11, And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. I want to just focus a few minutes this afternoon on the, the wise men, whether there was three of them or not. And there were some things about the wise men that I think you and I can glean, and maybe a help to, to us. And uh, the first thing I want us to see is that the wise men saw the star. They saw the star. And uh, I I think of that and I think, you know, uh, in our lives, God gives us illumination. He lights our way. He leads us. The Bible teaches us that He lays paths before us. And the race that is set before us in Hebrews chapter number 12. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119 that the Word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my Path and the fact that God illuminates and God gives light. And uh, he talks about the fact that we who were in darkness are no longer in darkness, but we've been given great light. We've been given understanding. We've been given the truth. And it has been illuminated in our hearts. We understand it more clearly. And, you know, the, the more we grow in the Christian life, the more we read Scripture, the more we strive to uh, walk with God, the more the Holy Spirit of God opens the pages of His Word to us and we understand it more clearly. And uh, that's why the Bible talks about there are some that are still in need of what's referred to as the milk of the Word and cannot handle strong meat. And He uses the analogy of like a baby in Christ. Uh, You don't take an infant child and start them on a a T-bone steak when they first come home from the hospital. They have to begin with milk and things that will cause them to grow and strengthen themselves 
so that they can then get to places where they can handle stronger things. And the Bible, in our walk with God, a lot of times deals with that. We see here the wise men, they see the star, they see the light that God has given them, and they don't just notice the light and take acknowledgement of it, but they act upon that. They, they do something about it. They begin to pursue after the light that God has given them. And I've seen people, and I've known people before, that have said, you know, I, I, I don't understand a whole lot of Scripture, and so I don't read my Bible. I don't spend time studying it. Can I encourage you in this? Take the light that God has given you and pursue after it. God will, God will bring more light as you go. He will direct your way. I love the fact that when they come to Herod and they ask Herod where this child is, the king of the place, the king of, of, of over that time, of over that area, uh, did not know where the child lay. And uh, when the wise men came out, they had gone to the person that should have known where all this stuff was, and he didn't have any idea where it was. But the light of God showed him the way. And oftentimes we find ourselves looking to men for the answers, and the truth is they don't have them. But the light of God's Word certainly has them. And it will light our way, and it will guide us. And so it guides these three wise men. They, they, they saw the star, and then I want you to notice, they, they followed the star. They followed the star. I think we can learn something from that. That we learn to follow the way that these wise men did. They didn't just come, they didn't just come uh, haphazardly. They, they didn't just hop in the car and say, we'll drive five minutes. If we don't find him in five minutes, we're going to give up and go home. They packed up their belongings. They packed up their wealth and their riches. They, they took the caravan. That's no small feat. They traveled from the east probably as much as two years, enduring hardship and following after this star. Can I say to you that we as God's people need to learn to follow the light of God's Word diligently? Diligently. We need to continue to follow after it, to pursue after it. And, and then I want you to notice, not only did they follow the star, but when they found what God had for them, they began to worship God for it. They began to give Him praise. I want you to look at what happens here. The Bible says in verse 11 that they fell down and worshipped Him. And when they had opened their treasures... Now, sometimes we think, well, they brought these three gifts just for uh, the, the, the child. I don't know. I, I think there's something about the fact that the Bible says when they opened their treasures, then they find these gifts. There's some significance to them. They didn't just open the treasures and just give Him whatever. But there was something specific about these things. Presented unto him gold, uh, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I have seen a lot of uh, people that have preached on these. I'm going to share some of the things that I have preached on these gifts here in just a moment. But uh, I want to encourage us in something else here. There are three gifts that are given. And I believe that in our worship, we ought to, we ought to follow the pattern of the wise men. The first thing that, that they find, the Bible the Scripture says that they gave them was gold. It's material wealth, material possessions. And can I tell you this, that we need to worship God with what we have. I know a lot of people who covet things. They say, boy, I wish I had more. Take what you have and give it to God. I'm not talking about where you have to come and put everything you have and own. In the, don't, don't empty your bank account into the offering plate at church. Although if you do, we can do the building program. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But we do give, everything I have belongs to God, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, my time, my, my, my life. But the material things that He's given to me, He just gives them to me and trusts me with them to use to work and do His work. They gave their gifts of material things. I want you to notice also, they gave the gift here of frankincense. Frankincense was used as 
uh, in the temple as a, a fragrance and a, uh, to be burnt as incense and was a symbol of prayers rising to God. And can I encourage you in this, that our praise, our praying, that the things that we offer to God uh, from our hearts ought to be uh, part of our worship. To spend time in prayer with Him. To spend time acknowledging who He is and who we are. And, and in, in full worship, privately. And I, I will say this, I, I think that public worship is certainly found in Scripture. But I believe that our private worship ought to far exceed our public worship. Our time where our hearts are entwined with His. And so they give Him uh, frankincense, this idea of, of the prayers going up and ascending. And then they give Him this thing of myrrh. This thing of myrrh. Myrrh was, was a, an embalming spice. In fact, it, was, it, would gain its, it, was, it would gain its pungency, it would gain its, its activeness when it was crushed. Now, I've often thought of that, that in order for this thing to do what it was intended to do, it had to be broken. And I thought of this, I thought, you know, the Bible teaches us that we're to give our lives a living sacrifice. Our vessels sometimes need to be broken in order for God to use us. And I look at those three things, and I think, boy, if we could give gifts like the wise men. Yes, our material things belong to Him. Our prayers and our praise belong to Him. And can I tell you this? Our life belongs to Him. A life with a heart that is broken and asking for God to fix it and to mend it and to lift it up and to strengthen it. And it's amazing what God can do with a, with a heart that is broken for Him. I was reminded as I studied about this and... Uh, just before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, an alabaster box of precious ointment. The Bible says that it was broken and it was put over His feet. And she took her hair and she wiped His feet with it. And the Bible says this, that when that box was broken, the fragrance filled the whole, the whole place, the whole house. I wonder what God could do with somebody who said, Lord, I just want to be broken for You. Not my will but Your will. Oh my, what an amazing gift to give God. I think that these wise men certainly gave these gifts. I don't know that those were the things they were considering or thinking of, but certainly I believe a wonderful pattern that you and I can give to God our material things, our prayer and our praise, our walk with Him, if you will, and our life sacrificially given to Him. Lord, what would You have me to do but I've heard these, and, I, and I've preached these before, and I've heard other people preach on these before, that the gold was given to represent the position of Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no king above Him. And, and it's interesting to me that the Bible talks about the fact in Philippians chapter number 2 that there's going to come a day that every knee, every knee, that means everybody, <laughs> doesn't matter how big or, or how proud they are, Every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because He is above all. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And this great King he is, is coming to earth in the form of human flesh. What a miracle that is. And these men, these wise men that had traveled so far, they had followed the star, they had endured hardship, they came, and when they came with their worship... They gave him a gift that was fit, not just for any king, but for the king of kings. They gave him the best they had. Can I encourage us in this? 
When it comes to giving God something, we need to give Him the very best that we have, not the leftovers. <laughs> we come to God so often in our lives and we say, God, I'll give you the leftover of my time. I'll give you the leftovers of my resources. I'll give you the leftovers of my heart and my mind. Why not give Him the very best? I was listening to a preacher a number of years ago, and he made this statement. He said, really, the, the process of living the Christian life is not trying to get to the place where we understand the difference between bad and good. He said, anybody can do that. He said, really, the, 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 the difficulty of the Christian life is trying to get to the place where we understand the difference between the good and the best, and always choosing the best. Being able to to do the very best that we have for the Lord. It's interesting to me that these people, these, these wise men that came, the Bible says that they opened their treasures. They had everything in these treasures to choose from. These were men of great wealth. Yet they chose these gifts. Why? Because they were precious. I personally think these were the very best that they could offer. I, 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 wear, I wear my best to church. I wear certain certain ties. I don't like ties. I hate ties. I think the guy that invented ties ought to be strung up by a tie. Amen. I can't stand them. But when I come to this place, it's not the building that's sacred, but there's something that happens in this place that, that I think I ought to give my best to. I ought to look my best. I ought to act my best. I ought to be the best. Why? Because it's something of an act of worship. I'm recognizing who He is and who I am. They come and they bring him a gift of gold. They give him a gift of frankincense. The frankincense was used by the high priest in the temple. He was to give the uh, fragrance of the, uh, of the incense that were to be burned. And it was the frankincense that he would take oftentimes as he would work his way in towards the Holy of Holies and, and having the frankincense and the, and the incense rising to heaven through the course of his procession there. I believe that the gift of frankincense was in recognition that not only is he the king of all kings, but he is also, according to the book of Hebrews, he's our high priest. He's the one that stands by the right hand of God, the Bible says, ever making intercession for us. He's the one that is the one that is the advocate with the Father. He's the one that the Bible tells us when the accuser comes and accuses the saints. He's the one that stands up and says, you know what, he's exactly right, but I already paid for that. Put that on my account. Man, what an amazing Savior. Why? Because he's my high priest. He's the only mediator between God and man. I'm thankful I don't have to go to a human priest. Amen? I don't meet people in our church coming and confessing their sin to me. I've got enough of my own to deal with. I don't need yours too. I go to God and I say, Lord, I need to confess my sin. And God the Father says, I'll listen to you, not for your sake, but for my son's sake. What he did for you on Calvary. He's the high priest, and I believe the gift of frankincense was in recognition of his position. Not only as king, but as high priest. And then we come to the myrrh. It's interesting that Nicodemus... The one who came to Jesus by night, when Jesus died, the Bible says that he brought myrrh. Myrrh was used as an embalming agent. It was used for death. It was a gift that you would give 
a, a spice that you would give oftentimes in the death of a loved one is very, very expensive spice. And I thought of that as I thought, what a gift to give a new mother. I mean, I could understand the gold. I, I think that makes sense. I, I could maybe even understand the frankincense. I think that makes sense. But to bring a spice that is identified with death and burial and embalming, I thought, what kind of a gift is that for an infant child? What was, what was Mary's thought on that? I thought, you know, if she knew the purpose of Christ, which I believe she did, I think she rejoiced in it. The Savior had been born. He wasn't just born just because God didn't have anything better to do. He was born for a purpose. He was born for a cause. These men, they come and they worship Christ, the child. These great men of renown, these men of wisdom, these men of learning, if you can get the picture, bowing themselves in front of a little child, a little toddler, giving him reverence and obeisance. This child here. He's not just my king, but he's the king of every king that's ever been born. This child right here, right in front of us, he's my high priest. He's the one that's going to allow me to have reconciliation with God the Father. And this little child right here, he's my sacrifice. And they owed him reverence and they owed him honor. Can I encourage us this Christmas time? Let's see the little Christ child for all that He is. Not just a little child in Mary's arms, although that's sweet. I think we love the, the, the nativity scenes that we see. Jennifer was wanting to dress up like Mary this year, and we didn't have a program to let her do that this year. But hopefully next Christmas she'll get to dress up, and she'll get to hold a little a little baby, a little little doll there that represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you in this? As we get to Saturday, or maybe Friday night as we're with our families and we read the Christmas story, let's picture Christ for all that He is. He is our King of kings. He is our High Priest. And most importantly, He is our sacrifice. And oh, what a wonderful, wonderful truth that is brought out just in the story of the wise men. And I love that. I hope that will be a help to you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the things that You teach us and show us through Your Word. Lord, nothing is in Your Word by mistake. Nothing is just done because it just happened. But Father, everything here has been because You have very carefully, very divinely planned it and orchestrated it, caused it to happen in a precise and an exact way so that Your requirements of justice could be met, so that our encouragement to worship could be given. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us as we leave here today to leave with the messages upon our hearts that will encourage us through this week as we look to the birth that we celebrate of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, while we understand it, more than likely was not in December. In fact, we're pretty certain it was nowhere near it. Lord, it is the time we've chosen to put our hearts and our minds to focus and to rejoice on the birth of Your Son. And so help us to do so this year. Not to get lost in all of the family and the trimmings and the food.
but that we would reflect upon You, that we would worship You with all of our hearts and give You Your rightful place. We pray in Jesus' name. Dismiss us with Your blessings. Amen.